So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 1. We, are, we have come upon the last two books of the Bible that we have yet to study as a church. And so tonight we're going to be starting in 1 Chronicles, and I would imagine we'll get through that. And next week we'll do 2 Chronicles. And we're, no, that's not going to happen. But we are nearing, not so much the end, but just a, a lap. A lifetimes of lapse through the scriptures. So as long as the Lord gives us, we'll just keep going. Um, as you're turning to First Chronicles chapter one, um, the guys told me outside. Steve uh, Blackhead told them I had mentioned this morning that there was a young man, D'Angelo, who I went to visit last uh, Friday, and um, he's, he's bedridden and he's not physically not doing well. Well, there was a, a turn of events where he stopped breathing and. He's in the hospital right now, and so I just want to lift him up in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and I lift up D'Angelo to you, and I pray, God, that you would meet him in a very real and practical way, Father, so that he would have a comfort and a peace, Lord. I pray for his parents, the family, and Steve, and just those who love him, and just pray, God, that your hand of grace would be upon all. Father, I just lift him up to you right now and just pray. Father, we pray that you would preserve his life. And Father, even miraculously heal him. But Lord, we just look for your will to come to pass. And so, Father, I lift him up to you and just pray for your blessings on that family. Pray that you would meet D'Angelo, God, in a very real and personal way. He is a born-again believer. So, Father, I just pray that he would have that peace that surpasses understanding. And so, Lord, I lift him to you and just pray, God, that your arms of grace would encompass him, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Keep him up in prayer as we go through the week, and um, if there's any updates, I'll keep you informed throughout or through the, uh, through the prayer chain. So we've come to this book of Chronicles, not to be confused with the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. It's the book of Chronicles. It covers the same period. Now, just a few months ago, we, we kind of took a little bit of a topical twist as we went through Psalm 119. But before that, we were in Second Kings. Now, the book of Chronicles, it covers the same periods of Second Samuel all the way through to Second Kings. Second Samuel and Second Kings are presented in the light of a political history. We looked at the specific kings during different reigns of both the northern and the southern kingdom. So if you remember when we were going through Second Kings, we would look at one king, the king of Israel, and then after his reign, or maybe even in the middle of it, we would bounce down to the southern kingdom of Judah and see a king, or we would see one's life played out, and then we would back up and go the other, and we'd see what was going on concurrently in these kings' lives. Well, as we're going into First and Second Chronicles, they are presented in the light of the religious history of Judah, because the focus is going to be on the Davidic reign in the southern kingdom with the great promises of Messiah to come through the line of David. In First Chronicles, chapters 1 through 9 are the genealogies from Adam to King David. In chapters 10 through 29, it speaks of David's reign over the united kingdom of Israel. 
the United Kingdom of Israel. Well, during David's reign, Israel will be as one, and David rules as a king over this singular kingdom. Solomon enters into the picture after the death of David, and Solomon, he didn't quite have the heart that dad did, as I believe I pointed out this morning. He was disobedient in that Deuteronomy told him not to multiply horses, wives, or riches, and he did all three things, and God said he was going to tear the kingdom away from him. But because God is gracious and he gave great promises, it was God's desire, and this is important even for tonight, that we would be able to follow the line of David all the way through to Messiah, so instead of just completely taking the kingdom away, he divided it into two. The two kingdoms were Judah and Benjamin, they were together, and then there were the ten tribes in the northern country of Israel. Key verses of Chronicles is first, first Chronicles chapter 17, verses 11 through 12. It says, And it shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you, who will be your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. Well, the only one that could possibly fulfill that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So we will see prophecies concerning Jesus Christ, and we'll examine in our studies how they were fulfilled. Also, another key verse is in First Chronicles twenty-nine, eleven. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Just a reminder that there's not a king that exists here on earth that is able to take the place of our God who is in heaven, who is seated upon the throne. So many times, the elections, we get caught up in all of the promises and we expect to gain a better life from the elected official when in actuality, our quality of life comes from our relationship with the Lord and the goodness that comes from the Lord. The author of the book of Chronicles is unknown, although most commentators, for one reason or another, look towards Ezra. Ezra the scribe, it just really doesn't matter in that this book we know to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. So ultimately, it was the Holy Spirit who moved in the heart of man to see this book included in the scriptures and even be taught at Calvary Chapel, Ontario tonight. In Jewish circles, the author is referred from time to time as the chronicler. The author is referred to as the chronicler, just simply the one who wrote chronicles. The word chronicles literally means words of the day. So it's really a good history lesson. Actually, all First Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. If you're a person who's in history and you like that background, this is a good place for you to be. Good books to study. When we go to Israel, we see these things played out. We see a lot of the areas that are being spoken of. Usually, when we go to Israel, the first three days we're in the northern country, and then the last remaining days we're in the southern country, and we can just see a lot of these areas that we have studied. There's Megiddo and the, the, uh, the, the Valley of Jezreel, and you can stand up there on Mount Megiddo as it overlooks the Valley of Jezreel, and you can see various places that are mentioned in the scriptures and various events that had happened. You can see the mountain, and we'll be looking at this tonight, where King Saul was killed upon. And so this history as you go to Israel, which we're probably going to go in 2020, or no, 2019, yeah, 2020, but 
these things just just come to life and here's the advent of this life is in the study of God's word and so it's so valuable to get into God's word and God's word is all you need if you never make it to Israel that's okay and this isn't a commercial for Israel but if you never make it to Israel that's okay because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God the word of God is all that we really need but it's just an amazing thing to see where these things played out and just to see these points of history now we are going to study both first and second chronicles at least it's my plan right now in a survey manner I'm not going to go verse by verse through every verse because I would probably kill you if you looked at uh, you looked at these genealogies. I mean, the first nine chapters of First Chronicles are genealogies, and if I even tried to pronounce all of these names, I'd probably kill myself. But what we're going to do is we're going to take, and it's my goal to get through these books fairly rapidly. A lot of these things we when we were studying. Um, uh, Second Kings, we, we, we saw these events and the details of these events, especially since on Sunday night we looked at Second Kings, and then on Thursday night we were also studying the book of Jeremiah, that a lot of these events coincided together. And it seems like the way the Lord works, we were studying almost the same point in history at the same time, even both nights. And so, again, this is going to be presented in a survey manner, case in point tonight, we're doing the first 10 chapters of Chronicles. And if you look at it that way, well, we should be done in Chronicles in two more weeks after tonight. Maybe we will, I doubt it, but I'm going to go through it very rapidly. It's going to be a flyover in history. And so, that being the case, we come upon the first nine chapters. Now, the first nine chapters, as I said earlier, are genealogies, and they represent the necessary genealogy of Israel's kings. The focus is going to be, because again, there's many people that are going to be represented here, all 12 tribes will be represented here, but the focus is going to be on King Saul and King David. The genealogy of a king would be necessary to prove that, first of all, he was a Jew, but it would also be essential to know and understand what tribe that he was from. Because, again, God's great promises were all directed, as far as Messiah, towards the tribe of Judah. Saul? Saul was destined for failure because of who he was, but also that Jesus Christ was not going to come through his tribe, not the tribe of Benjamin. This is why Matthew included the genealogy of the Lord right off as he was presenting Jesus Christ as the king of the Jews. And so there was that genealogy that showed that Jesus had claimed to that throne based upon the promises that God has given us. And so what that all lends towards as we look at history and we see his story in the Bible, we see the necessity for them to coincide together. And so we see that played out, and the genealogies just confirm that. And, well, really, as we go through that, just go through this flyover, we'll see so much more. And so of the utmost importance is King David and Jesus Christ coming through the line of King David, because that's what lends towards the truthfulness of the word, because God said, we see it in Second Samuel chapter 7, and we'll see it in Chronicles chapter 17 when we get there in the weeks to come, this great promise. And so part of what Jesus did as he came 
in the flesh was to fulfill the word of God. He had to fulfill every prophecy that was given concerning him. And so what we'll be seeing in Chronicles, this words of the days, the days of the rulers of Judah, we'll see how Christ came through that line. Even though man was unfaithful, God was faithful. And so first we come to chapter 1. Chapter 1 is the genealogy of Adam through the chiefs, all the way through to the chief of the Edomites. This is the line of the patriarchs as they are being established. I would imagine this is first because uh, Genesis being first without a doubt, but also to establish the patriarchs. If you would look through it, you would see there's the, well, over in verse 28, the genealogy from Abraham to Isaac and then Uh, You see the sons of Esau and then of Edom. And so it's the Lord's intent to establish where these patriarchs of Israel had come from, again, for the purpose of leading us to the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we're here, what reminds me of, it reminds me of Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5 was inserted to remind us because of the sinful condition of mankind, because that's a commonality really all uh, genealogies in the Bible, is the sinful nature that man possesses. And what does the sinful nature of man always lead to? It leads to death. In um, Genesis chapter 5, just for instance, verse 18, Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. After he begot Enoch, Jared lived... 800 years, and he had sons and daughters, and so all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. And so if you would go through chapter 5, you would see that commonality between everybody who was listed there, and he died. And so we see the sinful nature of man established through Adam as sin entered into the equation, death entered into the equation as well. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sin. And that's one of the things that stands out as we study these patriarchs, is that they were sinners. I mean, they sold their own brother into Egyptian slavery. These men were, you know, look at Judah. Judah is the one whom the line of the Lord's coming through, and he had relationships with his, a relationship with his uh, um, daughter-in-law. And, and you just see the mess that man fosters apart from God, but you also see how God works with that, and God is glorified through that, and our Lord is the one who's delivered us from these things. In chapter 2 of First Chronicles, we see the genealogy of the sons of Judah, and really here, the genealogy of King David is established, We see this in verse 12 of chapter 2. Boaz begot Obed, Obed begot Jesse. And we see that this is the father of King David. And as the father of King David, we see where this fits in, in his genealogy, in that line. So we would be able to trace David's genealogy back to the tribe of, of Judah. In 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verse 14, I had read it earlier. And matter of fact, we're going to see in these first nine chapters that the point is going to be firmly established of that line of Judah. But again, in chapter 17, verse 14, And I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom. Now it says forever. As it says forever, then that genealogy must continue on. 
And you say, well, how can it accurately continue on even today? Well, we deal with the lost tribes of Israel, but in actuality, that's just in our ignorance. There are no lost tribes of Israel. God knows exactly where they are at. And in establishing the worship in the temple, we'll see Levites come back on the scene. This is, we're leading towards the end times. But as far as the line of Judah, it achieved its purpose at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to, once again, look at the Bible. You can challenge the Bible. You can receive from the Bible. And the Bible invites you to do that. If there's any skeptics in this place, the Bible invites you to come and to challenge it. Men have been challenging the Bible for thousands of years. And the Bible has been found truthful every step of the way. It's kind of a neat thing. I've been asked to teach a class at the Bible College. I'm going to start doing that this Thursday morning. I'll still be here on on Thursday nights in Yucca Valley. My wife and I are going to drive out on Wednesday evenings and spend the night at my daughter's house. She lives out there, and I'll be teaching a class in Genesis. And I'm just looking forward to once again going back at those roots of the Scripture, that place in the first chapter where there's so much... Well, there's no controversy in my heart. There's no controversy in the Bible, but man has made it a point of controversy and a point of contention. We taught through Genesis, probably started teaching in Genesis around the year 2000, and I think I spent about a year, maybe a year and a half in the book of Genesis back then, just the beginnings of so much, so much richness there, and I'm so looking forward to that. Chapter 3 the genealogy of David's dependents, those who have come after King David. And the, what's established here and what we're reminded of is the right of the future generations to sit on the throne of Judah. It's important to keep, and we saw this in Second Kings, but to keep J- David's descendants straight and to understand that, again, God's promise is being worked out constantly throughout history. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13, we see concerning Solomon, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So those promises constantly given of the establishment of the throne of David. And you could say, well, I remember when Jesus came and there was Herod sitting on the throne. He wasn't part of this promise. There was times when Babylon came and there was nobody there. Yeah, but again, you need to see the importance that it's all pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ and that promise and this establishment of this permanent rule of the Lord for all of eternity. And as we go through the scriptures, we see that God was very faithful in that. Chapter 4. Well, in chapter 2, we saw the line of Judah specifically as it related to King David. In chapter 4, we're going to see it, or we see it generally as it relates to the line as a whole. Now, a point that I, I, I want to point, I want a point that I want to point out, uh, a point that I want to make here is in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. This was a sensation. I believe it was around 2001. There was somebody, I can't remember who, wrote a book called The Prayer of Jabez. And let me read the scriptures, verses 9 through 10. It says, Now Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother called his name Jabez because I bore him in pain. Jabez literally means grief. Grief. 
And Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, that your hand would be with me and that you would keep me from evil, that I may not cause pain. So God granted him what he requested. And I remember somebody wrote this book and it became a big marketing thing. And there was the prayer of Jabez. It was punched out on bracelets and jewelry. And I remember somebody gave me a little coin that had the prayer of Jabez. And this particular person that wrote the book says, well, if it worked for Jabez, it'll work for you. So if you pray this prayer every day, then God will bless you as well. Well, that's not really the way prayer works. And it just wasn't, you know, I I don't know that the author meant it that way, but that's the way it was taken. And that's this big movement of that time probably lasted three or four months. Well, what we see here, though, is, is the, just simply the grace of God. Again, Jabez to grieve. Why was his mother grieving? Jabez, it says, was more honorable than his brothers, so that tells me they were more than likely dishonorable. And his mother called his name Jabez, saying, because I bore him in pain. Now, why would we say that? In, in, so, in pain or, or, or in grief, and then his brothers, well, I have to imagine, I, I would guess Jabez's mother, as she was pregnant again, probably saw, and again, this is conjecture on, on my part, but probably saw the state of the integrity and the character of Jabez's brothers, of her other sons. And I, I would imagine, here I'm going to bring a, another one into the world. But it says, and Jabez, and this is how you change the trajectory of your family tree, Jabez called on the God of Israel. Now, he did pray. Not that we pray this exact prayer and think for a blessing to to pop up. It's a lot. What God's blessings and the way God moves is so much more deeper than something as superficial of repeating a prayer every single day. But here, he he called. This was a man who, who, who decided to work change. Now, again, Jabez means to grieve. And it is possible somebody said, well, maybe he had a birth defect. Maybe it was a sickness and all of this. I just see where the author and the Holy Spirit thought important to include the phrase that he was more honorable than his brothers. And so here's a man who has got a heart for the Lord, who is seeking the Lord. And that's where change comes in a family. That's where change comes in broken hearts and in disobedience to God and the results that is brought through that. He called on the God of Israel. Now, what you have here in verse 10 is an expression of Jabez's heart. And again, it's not a pattern for prayer. It's not something that we repeat over and over and over and over. Matter of fact, God has told us not to pray in such a manner. Even the Lord's Prayer, he's given us a general outline on how we are to pray. Jesus didn't say, pray this specific prayer and pray it over and over because what we do when we start doing things like that, we just mindlessly start praying because it just becomes routine in our life. When, before we got saved, when my son was having his first communion, he needed to learn the Lord's Prayer. And he asked me, Dad, can you help me learn the Lord's Prayer? And I said, sure, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, the kingdom come, will be done on earth as in heaven. You know, I just rattled off, he says, wait a minute, say it slower. Our Father who art in heaven, you know, I couldn't say it. You know, I, I could spit it out, but I couldn't say it. And then he asked me, what does art mean? Who's art? And what's he doing in heaven? I didn't have an answer for that because I didn't know what, what they meant by art in heaven. I, I assume it means they 
are. He is in heaven. And hallow, what is hallow? I didn't know what hallow meant at that point in my life. And so, you know, this was a prayer that I would pray all the time, but I didn't have a clue what in the world I was saying. Now, do you like having a conversation with somebody who doesn't know what he's talking about? I mean, you'll leave that and think, man, he didn't have a clue what he was talking about. He just wasted 10 minutes of my time. Do you think God would appreciate that? I would, I would think not. And so God wants our hearts, and so he wants to hear from your heart. Now, for Jabez here, I believe that God is hearing from his heart. And so we see this, and this should inspire us to pray, but we ought not to necessarily pray this exact, well, I don't think we should pray this exact prayer whatsoever. But again, this is something that God did answer. And so, Lord, give me the heart of the man to express myself to you. And so, again, and Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, that your hand would be with me, that people would see that God is with me, and that you would keep me from evil, that I may not cause pain. So God granted him what he requested. And I think, again, that request, as far as causing pain, I think his brothers probably caused a lot of pain, and that's what really grieved their mother. But he was wanting something to change with him. And so look at your family, what's going on in your family, as far as the flesh or the world as it existed in your family line, if that's the case, if there's been a lack of Christian character and integrity, part of your prayer needs to be, Lord, may it stop with me. That's been part of my prayer. Lord, may it stop with me and may this family, may there be a great event on the timeline of my family's life that something undeniable happened at that point of time and what it was, it was God entered into the family line and changed the future generations just through decisions for Christ that my wife and I made that that would be very apparent and the glory of God would shine on the timeline of my family line at that point and continue to shine throughout. And so prayer, yeah, there's similarities in how we are to pray to God. If you're saying this prayer every time, I think you're grieving the heart of God because you're not having that conversation. You're just repeating something that, well, do you even really know what he's saying? Make it real in your life it applicable to the situations and circumstances of your life because that's where you want God to do a work. That's where you want God to move. Chapter 6 is the Levites and their appointed cities. Their appointed cities, well, the Levites had no territory such as the other tribes of Israel did. Why? Because they were to serve the Lord. They were to be tied to the Lord and to service to God and not tied to keeping territories and keeping territories safe and everything that has to go with that. But they did have their appointed cities because the Levites would have families. They would have uh, areas that they would grow food and so on and so forth. And so God gave them their appointed cities. So we see the necessity that they still needed to take care of their needs. God provided for all of their needs as they served him, as they sought first the kingdom of heaven. But nonetheless, they still had to put forth the effort. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, we're told, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Well, the Levites had an opportunity in that. And then in the last three chapters, 7, 8, and 9, we see the genealogies of Issachar, Benjamin, Naphtali, Manasseh, Ephraim, Asher, Benjamin, and those of Judah who returned from Babylonian captivity. 
And, oh, I missed one out. I missed chapter 5. I'll back up on that. But really what he's doing, he's encompassing, in chapter 7 through 9, he's encompassing just these faces, these genealogies, and these generations that God would not leave anybody out. But God is the God over all and moving in all of these lives. I want to back up to chapter 5 just because I have a point that I want to make there. For some reason, I I skipped over that. But that's the line of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. This is a picture of the borderline believers. The the people who come right up to the border, but don't really enter in. When Israel was coming up to the promised land, just before they entered in and were to conquer, it was these tribes that were saying, hey, we're good right here. We're we're, we're good on this side of of the Jordan. And God allowed them to be there. But you see their hearts is to not to enter into all that the Lord had. Now Moses was beside himself, but they say, no, we're going to go to battle and we're going to help clear the land. But as far as our inheritance, we want it to be here. Well, those who stayed outside of what God had for them, who didn't enter in, they didn't enter into the protection of the Lord as well. And these tribes were going to be the first to fall. When an invading nation came, the first ones that they attacked were these tribes and led them off into captivity. And so the point here is is to be of the mindset to enter in to all that God has. Don't settle for anything short in your Christian life. God has exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think for you. And so always understand that it's common people that God uses. We're common people as he has blessed others. Don't stop short in what God may have for you. Occupation, ministry, giftings, whatever it might be. We're told in the scriptures to desire the better gifts. Best gift would be prophecy, the giving of God's word. In chapter 5, verses 25 through 26, we see the testimony. And they were unfaithful to the God of their fathers and played the harlot after the gods of the peoples of the land whom God had destroyed before them. And I would imagine living out on the border, one foot in the world and one foot in God's inheritance, it was, was not a good thing. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Paul, king of Assyria, that is, Tilgath Pilsir, king of Assyria, and he carried the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh into captivity. He took them to Hala, Habor, Hara, and the river of Gassan to this day. And so we just see the disaster that that worked um, in, 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 those, uh, in those tribes. One other thing before we enter into chapter 10, and that's where we'll land for the remainder of our study tonight. You see the genealogy of King Saul starting in verse 35 through to the end of the chapter. Uh, Once again, God just wants to establish who this man was. And as we get this relationship with him, as we look back on what we see in 1 Samuel, we see, well, again, David's testimony, Acts chapter 13, verse 22, David is a man after God's own heart. Saul was a man who was really for himself. He always seemed confused on the Lord and the things of the Lord because he allowed the world a bigger portion of his life than his relationship with God. And what we're going to see here is the man who does that, it's sooner or later going to lead to his downfall. You cannot serve God in mammon. There's no such thing, really, as a borderline believer. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But what about those who are on the border? Those who are half in and half out. I present to you, there's no such thing as half in and half out. 
I think that those people who are half in really in actuality are all out. They're just fooling themselves and fooling others. God has called us into this wonderful life and this relationship. As far as a husband and wife, there's no such thing. You know, I'm going to be married to you kind of like half the time. And half the time I'm going to spend with Jane over there. I hope nobody's name here is Jane because it's not the point. But, you know, that, that just wouldn't work. When I married my wife, it was goodbye to all the old girlfriends. And for her, all the old boyfriends. We were all in. And as we were all in, our relationship thrived. No relationship thrives when you're just half in. Well, Saul, if you will, was half in. So before we can start, and we'll be starting it next week in chapter 11, but before we can install David as king, we need to remove Saul from the throne, and that's exactly what happens here in chapter 10. So starting at verse 1 in chapter 10, and we'll pretty much go verse by verse through this chapter. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. Now, very rarely do you see Saul entering into a battle full-fledged. Usually he was just making the motions. Remember when David came and killed the giant? What was Saul doing? Again, you go to Israel, you see the Elah Valley. It's all right there. There's a, a wash that goes through the middle. My as I said many times before, I pick stones out for my grandchildren there. But there's one side of a hill over here and another side of the hill over there. Probably a mile in between, something like that, maybe half a mile. And so you could see both armies and their battle array up there. But what they're doing is kind of like two boxers. You know, when they're introducing them in the ring, if you ever watch boxing, they're kind of staring each other down. Well, that's what these two armies were doing. They were just kind of staring each other down. Then Goliath would come over and he would mock their God and they're afraid of Goliath. And David, when he came, he was just beside himself. We're the children of the living God. Why are we putting up with this? That's a paraphrase as well. And so finally Saul is going to face the Philistines and really what I think happens here I think he was probably brought to the end of himself at this point he had no choice but to face the Philistines but unfortunately he was ill-prepared now the Philistines fought against Israel and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Geboa so it doesn't even sound like it was much of a battle before they turned tail and ran. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Mel- Melchishua, Saul's sons. And the battle became fierce against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thus thrust me through with at least these uncircumcised men come and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. So Saul committed suicide. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died. So Saul and his three sons died, and all of his house died together. And when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that they had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook their cities and fled. Then the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So we see the price that this man paid. Again, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. And we see this played out in Saul's life. But death, this is a contagious death. This is a death that spreads far and wide. 
This is a man who had great responsibility because whom much has been given, much is expected of. And this man has been given by the grace of God, he's been given the office of king to lead God's people. And the thing that we see here, and it's important to understand, people were following him. If you want to be a leader, if you want to be a leader in the kingdom of God, keep that in mind. You have great responsibility. It should cause fear to well up within your hearts. Let not many of us call ourselves teacher because we will be held to a higher degree of accountability. And so the wage, well, part of the wage for sin, for his sin, the fee, well, his men fleeing and falling They should have been standing strong against the enemies of God, but instead, because of a leader of the flesh, they find themselves in a massive panic retreat. If you're not able to stand in the Lord and face your enemies, don't expect those who look up to you to be able to as well. Later on, we're going to see a list of David's mighty men, and we're going to see the great things that they've done. Against overwhelming odds, they were able to stand against the enemy and even kill the enemy. And why were they able to do that? I believe they were able to get their giants because David, David got Goliath. David was a man who inspired others. And it wasn't just simply because he was able to kill a giant. It was because in his relationship with God, he understood that the power would be of the Lord and not him. He was a man who got it. He was a man of great faith. And so what were these people seeing in King David? They were seeing this faith and they realized, you know what, if God can work through him, God could work through me. And we should have that same influence on those whom God has given us. Saul, Saul was fleeing and everybody else was fleeing. Saul was not a man who was proactive in his Christian life, so nobody else was proactive in their Christian life. Saul was a man who was always acting in the flesh, and so you ought not to expect everybody else to act in the spirit. Once again, verse 1, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Geboa. Not only was there the tragedy of good men falling, but it had a grip, had to truly grip Saul's heart as he realizes these people, these, these good men, these faithful men who are dying, it's based upon me. That would be a really hard thing to understand the hardship that others are experiencing because of your unfaithfulness in the Lord. As I've said so many times before, if you're a born-again believer, There's somebody in your life that looks up to you as an example of who a Christian is to be. We've got great response. Whether you like it or not, we've, you've got great responsibility in that to set a proper example and to keep that example. We've seen in the news, and I'll just use the example of pastors since they're to be held to a higher degree of accountability. We see in the news the ones who have stumbled and fallen and have arrogantly basically shaken their fist at the Lord. But you see the damage that it does to congregations. To stand on a stage, there's a higher degree of accountability. Pastor or worship leader. To be a leader of a ministry, greater degree of accountability. What does that mean? The idea is there's going to be greater scrutinization of your life, that you would live your life according to the Word of God. And again, we see the walks of other people. 
It does depend upon it because God uses our lives as an example of how others are to live and how others are to serve Jesus Christ. Jesus had some strong words for such a situation. Luke chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, Then Jesus said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come. It's impossible that no Philistine should come. No, but no offenses should come. But woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea that he should offend one of these little ones. And so the idea is there's going to be hardships, there's going to be attacks, there's going to be the flesh and all this, but make sure, Jesus is saying, it doesn't come through you. As much as it depends upon you, you stay clear of causing divisions within the body of Christ. You stay clear of causing somebody who is less mature than you to stumble says it would be better and really what he's talking about is a torturous act a millstone would weigh i don't know how much a millstone but as far as i can tell they'd weigh a couple hundred pounds can you imagine somebody tying a couple hundred pounds around your neck and dropping it in the ocean you'd be quick to follow and you'd sink to the bottom and that just sounds like a miserable death well it's supposed to be jesus is trying to lend strength towards this comment that we would understand the heart to whom much is given much is required and that we would take that responsibility. So the wages of Saul's sin was death of his faithful followers, and we have responsibility to those who are faithfully following us in our lives. The next great price we see three of his sons here in verse 2 are the cost of his kids. If you don't face the Philistines, or let's just say the giants in your life in obedience to the Lord, it's going to affect your whole household. If you're a leader within the home, and you are, they're going to look to you as well. And how does a man, I mean, my daughters look to me as how a man is to conduct himself, a Christian man is to conduct himself, and prayerfully they make a choice and put that, those attributes as I'm faithful to the Lord on the person that they choose. And my son will look to my wife, he'll look to me, we, me and my wife, you and your wife, your husband, you set that example in the home and there's great responsibility. If you stand strong in the Lord, I guarantee you when the hardship comes, the difficult day, they'll stand strong in the Lord. If you're folding and going to the world, I guarantee you they will follow that as well. What's a giant in your life that you are to overcome? Well, the list is long. I got a few points, but could be a giant in your life, an anger issue need to find victory in that in the Lord Jesus Christ. Drinking drug problem, disobedience to God and whatever it is that God calls you to do, and even so much more in the minor issues. The minor issues speak volumes. And what I mean by that, just in the day-to-day routines of life, are you quick to pray? Are you seeking after the Lord? Do your kids see that you value the word of God? Saul didn't do that And eventually, it cost his kids their lives. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15. Catch the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. We've been given the tender souls of our children. Really, Saul's greatest sin, accepting the throne and calling himself king and living out in a lie. Israel, Israel means governed by God, but Saul was never truly, he never truly submitted himself to the Lord and the word of God. He was more governed by the flesh. 
when God told him to go and to destroy Agag, he didn't do it. Matter of fact, he took Agag in the spoil as a, uh, a, as a trophy of war, if you will, and that was part of the reason judgment came upon him. And so here's a man when when didn't have this relationship with God. When Samuel died, he didn't know what to do. Instead of praying and seeking the Lord out in his situation, what did he do? He went to this witch, and there ought not to have been witches in the land at that time, but I think because of Saul's compromise there was, they did what we would call a seance. And I think God allowed Samuel to speak to him because he did not have a heart for the Lord. So God sent a message through Samuel and told him of this day of his death. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sin. He set that example to his kids. And so again, notice that who was the last to die here in this equation? It was King Saul. He saw that his men were fleeing for their lives. He saw that they were dying on the hilltops. He knew that his sons were dead. And I think that's a bigger part of the reason why he ended up falling upon his sword. Now, I'm sure he was concerned about being taken captive, but at that point, he just saw all was lost and what a mess he made of his life. The last great price that the wages of Saul's sin extracted from him was the payment of his life. Again, verses 3 through 6. The battle became fierce against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised or these godless men come and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died. So there's another one that he drugged down. Saul and his three sons died, and all of his house died together. The payment of his life. An interesting correlation of contrast here between Israel's first king and its last king. Look at the examples between King Saul, a man who operated in the flesh, and the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, he who is the ultimate acting in the Spirit. There are some similarities, but obviously differences. Similarities both seem to have died in defeat and failure. We know Saul did. Jesus, it seemed to be, but he ended up a great victory. Both were severely wounded before their death. Both gave up their lives of their own will. The followers of both scattered upon their deaths, and both bodies are later claimed for burial. The differences... Well, we know three days after Jesus' death, he came back to claim victory over, over death. Saul, we don't even have a clue what became of his body ultimately. I mean, I know what the scripture says, but we're not sure where that is. Saul's death resulted in the occupation of the enemy. Jesus, he set us free. Saul's death, Saul died because of his sins. Jesus died because of your sins. The Bible tells us that Saul's reign as king ended here with another soon to start. Jesus started at his his death, and his rule will last for all eternity. Verses 8 through 10, and it says, So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain. So they didn't even know that they had killed the king. They're going and they're taking the plunder from the bodies. It says that they found Saul and his son fallen on Mount Geboah. 
and they stripped him and took his head and his armor, and so these would be trophies of war, and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and amongst the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. And when all Jabesh Gilead heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his son, and they brought them to Jabesh and buried their bones under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. So you see that these men are honorable. They see that their king, whoever their king may be, but their king, their king has been taken captive by the enemies, and this ought not to be so, so they're willing to risk their lives. Now, on the tour of Israel, you go to Bet Shean. Bethshean now is ruins of a Roman city, but there is a hill that is there that towers over the city. It's probably maybe four times as tall as this building. It's, I, I can't tell you. It's maybe 100 yards tall. I don't know, but it, it just demand, it commands over the valley uh, overlooking the Jordan River and whatnot, and it's believed that's where Saul's body was hung from. And what are the enemy doing? They're proclaiming that we've got victory over these people who are of the supposed God. Well, you've got these men that are beside themselves because of it. They're realizing, these men of Gilead, that this ought not to be so. And so really what you need to see is the lack of integrity of King Saul, but still you see these men who are dedicated to the knowledge of who God is, and God has ordained this man, regardless of who he is, for that office. And so we're not going to allow the enemies of God to boast over the appointed of God or the anointed of God. In verse 13 it says, and here's the reason, of Saul's death. So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because he consulted a medium, the rich of Endor, for guidance. But he did not inquire of the Lord. That means he could have inquired of the Lord, but he did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, he killed him. God killed Saul and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. So you have the reason of his death there. Let not many of you become teachers. You'll be held to a higher degree of accountability. Question has to be asked. You see that at one point he was a man filled with the Spirit. Where's King Saul today? Is he in that waiting place for the judgment of all those who are of the world to be condemned for eternity apart from God? Or is he in the presence of God? It's kind of a hard thing. Just because God killed him doesn't mean that God condemned him. doesn't mean that he didn't know either. And that's the thing. You start looking at an element of man's life and his unfaithfulness to God and what kind of relationship. He had a greater relationship with Samuel than he did with the Lord. And so I could probably make a compelling case both ways. But the thing about it is, when somebody's not faithful to God, when they're not seeking after the Lord, and, and, and this is more important for yourself when you look in the mirror, there's no surety. There's no surety for those who have one foot in the world and one foot in, if you will, the church. And so, again, I think I could probably make a compelling argument both ways. And so you see the difference in how God judges a person versus how we judge a person. How we judge a person, well, we see in Saul's example in 1 Samuel 9-2, and he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he amongst the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And I look at that and I think, man, that's how we elect presidents in this country. 
you know, it's a popularity contest. I mean, you know, for the most part, that guy looks like he would be a really good president. But you've got to look deeper than that. How did God judge as he looked in Saul's heart? Again, chapter 10, verse 13. So Saul died for his unfaithfulness. He was not faithful to God and what God had called him to do. For his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word. He was not a man of the word of God. Nobody's. A, if you don't keep the word of God, you're not right with God. And, and, and how many times do we see these presidents that call, or these candidates, that call themselves Christians, but you never see them darken the doorstep of a church. You're never really, do you see them reading the word of God? We need to be in examples and faithfulness in that. It's of the utmost importance because he did not keep the word of the Lord and also because he consulted a medium for guidance. His trust was not in God. It was really a medium. Who's a medium speaking to? They're really speaking to a spirit and it's not an angel and it's not God. It's more than likely a demon. Building integrity. Well, we see that Saul never did. How do we build integrity? Well, we can do so through two ways. First, we can do through, build integrity through reputation. Reputation is what others think you are. Integrity built upon the foundation of reputation will soon collapse because you won't be able to keep it up. Integrity can also be built through character. And just as reputation is what a man thinks you are, character is what you are proven to be before the Lord. You're not going to be a perfect person, but a char- somebody with character has a heart who seeks after the Lord and the things of the Lord. As for King Saul, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's what we are going to be working towards. If you take the line of Judah and the promises out of the equation, you take the Lord Jesus Christ out of the equation, and you're just stuck with a line of men who are similar to Saul. And we see that in the northern kingdom rulers and how none of them ever did what was right in the sight of God. Father, I just pray that through your spirit that you would enable us, Lord, to truly do right in your sight, not for salvation, but because of salvation. And I pray, Father, that we would be found faithful for the purpose, Lord, of inspiring others in their walk with Christ. And so, Father, just fill us with your spirit and enable us in all of your purposes that you have for us. That, Father, we would be that those who are leaders of men and women. And because of that, Father, the kingdom of heaven would be stronger. And so, Lord, we just lift all to you once again, thanking you for this day. I pray for those who have come out, Lord. I pray that you would go before them and bless them. I pray for D'Angelo, Lord, that your hand of grace would be upon him and his family during this hard time. And I pray, Father, for those of us will be going into unsaved homes tomorrow, that you would give us the word, Lord, the words to speak, that we would be that example that you've called us to be. And so, Lord, we just thank you for tonight, that you'd be glorified through our humble lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? Once again, we are having our baptism and our anniversary day. It's going to be on the 23rd. It's designed to be just a celebration, a celebration just because we're Calvary Chapel, Ontario, and just the great things that God has done. We're going to, that'll be our Sunday morning service. Later on that day at 3 o'clock, we're going to be having a baptism at Frank and Darlene's house. The maps will be at the information booth. If you want to be baptized, we need to get you signed up. Not that you have to be signed up, but we'd just like to get a good idea 
idea on who's getting baptized and who is, well, not so much who isn't, but who is getting baptized. Also, our couples retreat is coming up, and uh, Richard and Rosemary will have a little bit more to say about that Sunday morning next week, but we have We've got a lot going on this time. Usually August is a time we don't do anything. We kind of take a break after the busyness of summer and all, but we're still moving forward, and people are still perishing out there, and the gospel's got to go out. God bless you guys. Have a great week. fills the night it cannot hide the light whom shall I fear you crush the enemy underneath my feet you are my sword and shield no troubles linger still whom shall I fear I know who goes before me I know who stands behind The God of angel armies Is always by my side The one who reigns forever He is a friend of mine The God of angel armies Is always by my side My strength is in your name for you alone can save, you will deliver me, yours is the victory. Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? I know who goes before me, I know who stands behind. The God of angel armies is always by my side. The one who reigns forever, he is a friend of mine. The God of angel armies is always by my side. And nothing formed against me shall stand. You hold the whole world in your hands. I'm holding on to your promises. You are faithful. You are faithful. You are faithful. I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. The God of angel armies is always by my side. The one who reigns forever, he is a friend of mine. The God of angel armies is always by my side. I know who goes before me, I know who stands behind. The God of angel armies is always by my side. The one who reigns forever, he is a friend of mine. The God of angel armies is always by my side. The God of angel armies is always by my side. Amen. Have a blessed night, everyone.